The following message is brought to you by Berean Bible Church and may be used and distributed free of charge. For more free audio, video, and text resources, be sure to visit www.bereanbiblechurch.org. Thank you. All right, good morning, Bereans. Appreciate you being here today. We are periodically working our way through Matthew's account of the Olivet Discourse, kind of doing this hit and miss. So if you missed the previous episodes, you've got to go back and listen to them, all right? You have to check out the website, and when you see I'm going to do this, then go back and listen to the five or six previous, and you'll be right on target for this one, right? You'll be ready to, as we go through it. <clears throat> now, as we study this chapter, it's really important we keep in mind its context. It's, that's always important, but especially in this text, all right? Throughout Matthew's Gospel, Yeshua continually warned the Jews of their coming judgment because of their apostasy, because of their rejection of Yeshua as the Messiah. And the closer you get to chapter 24, the more you notice the building of this judgment theme. The Lord is warning them, you're going to be judged for your rejection of Me. In Matthew 23, 37-39, He says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, How often I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now by house here, when he says your house is left to you desolate, he's referring to Jerusalem and the temple complex. And he, he, the word here for desolate is the Greek word eremos, and it means waste, desert, desolate, solitary, or wilderness. The city and the temple, he says, are going to be destroyed. Now, historians are very clear this happened in A.D. 70 when the Roman army came in and wiped out Jerusalem, destroyed the temple, killed tons and tons of people, all right, this is prophetic when it's being said, but we know that it's happened now. And he moves into chapter 24, just following 23 there. And he says, Yeshua left the temple. Right, he's just talking about the doom of that temple. He leaves the temple, and he was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. But he answered them. He says, you see all these, all these buildings of the temple, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Now that would have been hard for them to believe. This place was a fortress. These stones were massive. He's saying this is all going to be destroyed. And those words are still ringing in their head that he just said, your house shall be left to you desolate. In verse 2, he predicts that the massive temple would utterly be destroyed in an act of God's judgment. Then in verse 3, as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us, when will these things be? What things? The things he just talked about, the destruction of the temple. He wanted to know, when, when is this going to happen, Lord? And what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? Now we can put the disciples' threefold question this way. When will the temple be destroyed? And what will be the sign of your presence in power and glory as Messiah and of the end of the Jewish age. We need to remember that in this discourse, the Lord is answering the disciples' questions. That's what chapter 24 is all about. They ask Him questions. He's answering their questions for them. As we work our way through this discourse, we need to fight the temptation to read this as if it was written today. Written in the 21st century. Too many people do that. Look, look what it says. Well, that's not written today. This was written 2,000 years ago. Keep that in mind as we go through this. Yeshua is speaking to His disciples. He's speaking to them in the first century. And we have to study it in light of that context. Audience relevance is something we must always keep in mind as we read the Bible. What did this mean to the people to whom it was written? Because it was written to real people. Do you know any book of the Bible that was written to the saints in Hampton Roads, Virginia? The book of Berean. (laughs) Listen, people, I like to say this because it makes Christians kind of freak out, but the Bible is not written to us. Okay? 
It's written for us, but it's not written to us. There's no one here who was, you know, in the church of Philippi, to the saints of Philippi, right. There's no one here from Corinthians, from the Corinth church, all right? So it's not addressed to us. But look what Paul wrote. He says, all Scripture is breathed out by God, and it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So the Scriptures are God-breathed and they're profitable for us, but they're not written to us. And thus we have to understand the original intent before we start applying them to our lives. Now as I'm sure you understand, it's not always easy to understand exactly what the original intent of the authors was. I mean, we're separated from the original audience by thousands of years. We're separated by culture, by history, by language. And we have to seek to break down these barriers so we can understand what the Scriptures are saying. But here's the key. If we do our homework, and there's a four-letter word in that word that people don't like, work, okay? It's work. Because we have to investigate the culture. We have to try to understand what was the cultural surroundings, what was happening at the time of this writing. We have to understand the history. And we're going to talk a lot about history this morning because I'm going to quote a lot from Josephus, who was a historian that wrote during the first century. All right? His writings are pretty important because he gives us insight of what exactly is happening there. We have to work at breaking down the language because the Bible's not written in English. All right? It's written in Hebrew, Greek, and a little Aramaic. So we have to try to understand the languages so we can understand what is he saying here. Well, the passage we're looking at this morning is very difficult to interpret with absolute certainty. And this is one of the more difficult prophetic passages in the New Testament. W. Robertson Nicole said this, What is said therein is so perplexing as to tempt a modern expositor to wish it had not been there. There's passages like that you read, you know, and you go, I don't have a clue what this is talking about. I don't think this is all that difficult. Uh, I, I think some people, I think they make a bigger deal about this than they should. But, I don't want to be like the little boy who was drawing a picture and his dad said, son, what are you drawing? He goes, I'm drawing a picture of God. The father said, son, nobody knows what God looks like. The boy said, well, they will when I'm done with the drawing. (laughs) I like that little boy's confidence, but I don't want to assume that just because I'm interpreting this passage when I get done with it, everybody will be clear on what it means, okay? I'm just asking you to be Bereans. I think that it's clear that the Scripture interprets the Scripture, So I'm fairly confident in my interpretation, but I want you to be good Bereans. That's your responsibility, to search the Scripture and see if these things are so. Now we saw in our last study that our Lord told the disciples they would see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel, which Luke explained as Jerusalem being surrounded by armies. And when they did, there would come a time of great tribulation, he says in verse 24. There will be great tribulation. Now, we looked at this verse in depth in our last study of Matthew 24, and we saw that the great tribulation is past. I know. I'm sorry, but it's already over. I don't want to disappoint anybody, but you missed it. It was 2,000 years ago, all right? It was the destruction of Jerusalem as the context of this and the parallel gospel accounts make abundantly clear. All right? That great tribulation was to come upon that generation. Now, we need to realize the scope of the Great Tribulation upon the people of Israel. It was not just those in Jerusalem that suffered and died. But all over Palestine, the whole country felt the judgment of God. Josephus wrote this, There was not a Syrian city which did not slay their Jewish inhabitants and were more bitter enemies to us than were the Romans themselves. See, Yeshua said there will never be anything to equal this tribulation. And our Savior wept at the foresight of these calamities. And as we read the accounts of Josephus, it's almost impossible for us to keep from weeping. And when you read some of the things he writes about in the wars of the Jews, it's pretty incredible. Josephus said, To speak in brief, no other city ever suffered such things as no other generation from the beginning of the world was even more fruitful of wickedness. So he said, nobody went through this stuff, but this was a really wicked people because they were God's people. And they had turned their back on God. And God was going to deal with them because of that. So we move into a new text. We, we ended with 21 last time, so we're going to pick up with 22. 
hopefully go to 29. <clears throat> we'll see what happens. I got extra time this morning, so. <laughs> I got an extra hour, right? <laughs> Is that how I lost an hour? Then I'll only preach for an hour, okay? Won't go two hours this morning. Verse 22 says, And if those days had not been cut short, the days of the tribulation, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days were cut short. Now, Josephus computes the number of those who perished in the siege at 1,100,000, besides those who were slain in other places. And he says, if the Romans had gone on destroying in this manner, the whole nation of the Jews would certainly in a little time have been eliminated. Now, the word here for saved, you know, we have a problem. We see the word saved and we think, born again, right? New life. Usually that's not how it's used, okay? This is the Greek word sozo. It has a wide range of possible meanings. It can mean physical healing. It can mean rescue from danger. It can mean spiritual deliverance of various kinds. And it can mean preservation from final judgment. That's how we usually look at the word. But you have to determine the meaning of the word from its context. Here's one of my favorite verses on this. Acts 27, 31. They're on a ship. All right, the, the, the sea is, you know, they're just thinking they're going to die. Okay, they're throwing stuff off the ship. They're trying to stay alive. And so some guys are trying to escape from the ship. We're going to let down this boat. We're going to try to escape. And Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. There's got to be a group out there that teaches, you know. <laughs> you got to get in the boat to get saved, you know. Somehow there's someone doing that somewhere, you know. This is not, he's not talking about eternal life. You know, if you don't stay in the ship, you don't get eternal life. He's talking about physical deliverance from drowning. If you get in that water, you're going to drown. If you want to be saved, stay in the boat. So context determines the meaning of sozo. All right? It's not a reference to redemption. The Lord is saying that had the war in Jerusalem gone on much longer, no one would have been left alive. Everybody would have died. All right? That's what he's saying. But, he says, for the sake of the elect, those days were cut short. Now, Mark puts it this way in Mark 13. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, whom He chose, He shortened the days. Now, I like what Mark does here because he uses the word elect, then he uses the word chosen. He's kind of double emphasizing it here. The elect here is a well-known designation in Scripture for believers, for Christians. Let me show you exactly who the elect are, because there's a lot of confusion on this in our day and time. Okay? John 6.37. Yeshua's talking. He says, All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Cast out. Now, two verses earlier, again, context, Yeshua had connected coming to Him with believing in Him. So they're the same thing. They're synonymous. To come to Christ is to believe in Christ. Alright? So all that the Father gives to Him will believe in Him. Now why does anybody come to believe in Yeshua? You say, well, they just exercise their free will and they come in, right? No, that's not what the Bible teaches. It's only, the only way a person comes to believe in Christ is if he is given to Christ by the Father. So the reason anyone does not believe is because they are not given by the Father to the Son. So who believes in Yeshua? He says, all that the Father gives. See, most people in our day and time are Arminian, all right, in their soteriology. And they just believe that, you know, you just, Christ died, and then hopefully somebody would believe in him and come to faith. So Christ could have died for nothing, right? If it's up to man's free will, some could have, everybody could have just said, no, nah, I'm really not interested in that. I don't want it. So he could have died for nothing. But he didn't die for nothing because God the Father had promised God the Son a gift for his suffering. So the ability to believe on Yeshua requires divine enablement. It is only those who the Father enables to believe that come to Yeshua in faith. These are all the people whom the Father gives to the Son as a gift. See, the believers, the redeemed, the church is a love gift to the Son from the Father. You're a gift to the Son. Isn't that incredible? Yeshua viewed the ultimate cause of faith as God's electing grace, 
not man's choice. The word gives here is a word of destiny. It's divine, sovereign election. And the concept of the elect being a love gift from the Father is taught throughout the Scripture. Notice what Isaiah writes in Isaiah 8.18. Behold, I and the children whom Yahweh has given me are signs and portents in Israel from Yahweh of hosts who dwells on Mount Zion. Now, who is speaking here? I and the children whom Yahweh has given me. Well, the epistle to the Hebrew quotes these words as words of Yeshua in Hebrews 2.13. And again, I will put my trust in Him, and again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Now, speaking of Isaiah 8.18, the IVP Bible background commentary states this. These are not the words of the prophet, speaking of himself and his natural children, nor his spiritual children, his disciples, called sometimes the sons of the prophets, but of Christ. So in Isaiah, these are the words of Christ, who has a seed, a spiritual offspring, who are given him of God in the covenant of grace. The Tanakh represents the Father as promising the Son a certain reward for His suffering on behalf of sinners. We see this in Isaiah 53, 10-11. Yet it was the will of Yahweh to crush Him. Speaking of Christ. He has put Him to grief when His soul makes an offering for guilt. He shall see His offspring. He shall prolong His days. The will of Yahweh shall prosper in His hand. Out of the anguish of His soul... He shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. It says, he shall see his offspring. This is a reference to the elect of God. God has given the elect to Christ. We are children of promise. And it says that he shall see and be satisfied. Not frustrated, not, oh man, I wish somebody would believe in me. I wish that I'd love that person, but I just can't get their attention. They won't come. No, he is satisfied. So when Yeshua says, all that the Father gives me will come to me, he's saying, though many may reject me, all that have been given to me of my Father, the elect, will believe in me. How can Yeshua be so sure that those who the Father has given will come to him? He's sure because the Father who the love gift that He gives to Christ, He draws to Christ. Okay? And again, we've gone over the word draw, we've gone over that. Helkuo, to draw by irresistible superiority. All that the Father gives are going to come. So it was for the sake of the Son's love gift, the elect, that the days were shortened. So the believers weren't all wiped out in this thing. Through the fury of the zealots on one hand and the hatred of the Romans on the other, and partly through the difficulty of enduring in the mountains without houses or provision, everybody would have been destroyed either by sword or famine if the days had not been shortened. But providentially, the days were shortened. And Josephus says, Titus himself was desirous of putting a speedy end to the siege. Titus was the Roman general carrying out the siege against Jerusalem. Having Rome and the riches and the pleasures there before his eyes, some of his officers purposed to him to turn the siege into a blockade. And since they could not take the city by storm, to starve it into a surrender. So they said, let's just set up a blockade and we'll wait to starve them out. But he thought it not becoming to sit still with so great an army. And he feared lest the length of time should diminish the glory of success. Everything indeed may be affected in time. But speed contributes much to the fame and splendor of actions. In other words, let's get in there and get this done, okay? Let's get it over with. And the Jews, too, helped with this. This is what you have to understand. The Jews helped shorten the days by the divisions and the fighting that were going on inside Jerusalem. you got the Roman army coming in from the outside, but inside they're killing each other. They're burning up their own supplies, because the factions that are going on inside, they could have lasted <coughs> excuse me, for many, many years. And they had strongholds in there that the Romans could have never got into by force. It would have taken them forever. But by these means, the days were shortened. Or Jerusalem would, never would have been taken in such a short time. Because it was well fortified. 
And it was able, they had plenty of food in there to last a long time. And the Romans wouldn't have been able to prevail if it wasn't for all the factions going on inside. Titus himself ascribed his success to God, which is kind of interesting, okay? As he was viewing the fortifications after the city was taken, his words to his friends were these. He says, we have fought with God on our aid. And it is God who hath pulled the Jews out of these strongholds. For what could the hands of men or machines avail against these towers? This is the Roman general saying, we could have never taken this place without God's help. And these are God's people, so he's like, he realizes this, alright? God, therefore, in the opinion of Titus, as well as the other inspired writers, shortened the days. Now, it wasn't in Jerusalem alone, but all over the country that war waged. And had it gone on, many of the Christians who fled to the outlying areas would have been in danger. So he said that if anyone says to you, look, here's the Christ, or there He is, don't believe it. Now, Yeshua had cautioned His disciples earlier in this chapter against false Christs and false prophets before, but He gives a more specific caution against them about the time of the siege and the destruction. Now, now picture this, people. you got the Romans on the outside. you got all this fighting inside. It's just a horrible condition. And then you got people coming along and saying, hey, I'm the Christ. Follow me. Okay? And it's like, people are following Him. Why? Because people are desperate. you got a solution to this? you got a way out of this? Let's go. He says, For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders, so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. Now, we learn from Josephus that many such impostors did arise about the time and they promised deliverance from God, being persuaded by the tyrants or governors to prevent the people and soldiers from deserting to the Romans. And the worst of the Jewish situation, the more open they were to listening to this deception. When people are in bad strait and you're offering them a, you know, a solution, they're ready to jump on that. They're willing to follow these people. Hegesippus in Eusephus, mentioned the coming of false Christs and false prophets about that same time. Docetius was reputed to work wonders, according to Origen. Jerome mentions a man who pretended to vomit flames. These people are all doing these great signs, so come follow me. He says, see, I've told you beforehand. So Christ had warned them about the coming of these false Christs, these false prophets. He says, so if they say to you, look, he's in the wilderness, don't go out. If they say, look, he's in the inner rooms, don't believe it. Several of the false Christs and false prophets led their followers into the desert. Josephus, in his Antiquities, says this, Many impostors and cheats persuaded the people to follow them into the desert, where they promised to show manifest wonders and signs done by the province of God. And many being persuaded suffer the punishment of their folly, for Felix brought them back and chastened them. Again, in his history of the Jewish war, speaking of the same people, Josephus says, these impostors under the pretense of divine inspiration, affecting innovations and change, persuaded the multitude to grow mad and led them forth into the desert as if God would there show them the signs of liberty. Against these, Felix, for it seemed to be the foundation of a revolt, sent horse and foot soldiers and slew a great number of them. Josephus mentions another imposter. He said, who promised salvation to the people and a cessation of all evils if they would follow him into the desert. But Festus sent horse and foot soldiers against him and destroyed the deceiver himself and those who followed him. So several of these imposters, they led their followers into the secret chambers or places of security. Josephus mentions a false prophet who declared to the people in the city that God commanded them to go into the temple. And there they should receive signs of deliverance. A multitude of men, women, and children went up accordingly, but instead of deliverance, the place was set on fire by the Romans, and 6,000 perished miserably in the flames or by throwing themselves down to escape them. So they're promising them deliverance, but they're not getting it. And I'm sure you can understand that during such a time of crisis, such a time of distress, people are open to hear and follow anybody that promised deliverance. That's how people are. When they're hurting, they're open to things. That's why just go to one of these faith-healing crusades and watch the people flock down to these 
charlatans, I'm trying to look at a, say a nice word, that, <laughs> because they're desperate. When people are sick, they want to be healed, so they're like, I'll try anything. People that know better, they'll try anything. When people are desperate, that's why they are, and they were desperate during this time, so they're following these false people wherever they can. All right, verse 27 says, For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. So he's taught, warning about these false Christs, and he says Christ's coming is not going to be in this place or that particular place. He's going to come like lightning. It's going to be sudden. It's going to be universal. The appearance of the true Christ is clearly going to be ex- distinguished from that of these false Christs. Josephus says, The Roman army entered into Judea on the east side of it and carried on the conquest westward, from east to west, as if not only the extensiveness of the ruin, but the very route which the army should take was intended in the comparison of the lightning coming out of the east and shining into the west. Now, while that may be true, all right, I think that Christ's emphasis here, based on the immediate context, is that His coming is going to be swift, it's going to be a universal judgment. Now, what this verse tells us is that the Lord's coming is going to be like lightning in some manner. There's a comparison here. He says, for as lightning, so will the coming. The word coming here is the Greek word parousia. This word is used four times by Matthew, all of them in chapter 24. This is the same word the disciples use in their question when they ask, what will be the sign of your coming? Now remember from our earlier study on verse 3, that we compared all three gospel accounts of this question. You see that the disciples considered His coming and the end of the age to be identical events with the destruction of Jerusalem. They tied those all together. To the disciples, the parousia was not used of a second coming because they didn't know He was leaving. It was signified the full manifestation of His Messiahship. A glorious appearing in authority and power. So we could translate it this way. For as the lightning comes from the east and flashes to the west, so also will be the glorious appearing in authority and power by the Son of Man. Now what does the idea of lightning tell us? Many of the modern futurists interpret the idea of lightning as something visible to the whole world. Okay, uh, Walvert says, apparently the heaven will be ablaze with the glory of God. In other words, the whole sky is just going to light up, and then you'll know, right? Uh, F.C. Cook says, the coming of Christ shall not be an obscure one, confined to a particular place and signified from thence by report, but one visible to the whole world. Okay, everybody in the world, he says, is going to see it. Surely this, again, is an intention that the second coming of Christ is not to be identified with any local event, such as the destruction of Jerusalem. So we can't make this a local event because he said lightning. Let me ask you, folks, is lightning a local event? You know, I see lightning outside, and I'm like, okay, I get on the phone, I call up Gennady in the Ukraine. I said, hey, Gennady, did you see that lightning? He's like, mm, I didn't, this sun's out, it's beautiful here. What are you talking about? Well, the lightning just flashed. You didn't see it? How's he going to see it? I mean, you know, in a small area, yeah, a lot of people will see it, but come on, people. How can something happen that the whole world is all going to see at the same time? I know, that's when they throw in cable news networks. They're all going to be on TV. So everybody's going to be watching that same channel, right? No. A flash of lightning can't be seen by the whole world. But... But maybe it can be seen by a whole city. And I think that by comparing Scripture with Scripture, we can see that lightning is a reference to the judgment of God. And that's what he's talking about, okay? Not a bright light of glory that everybody's going to see. In these passages in the Tanakh, we see local judgments of God described by the use of lightning. 2 Samuel 22, 14 and 15. Yahweh thundered from heaven. The Most High uttered His voice. He sent out arrows and scattered them, lightning, and routed them. The Hebrew word for lightning here is barach. It means lightning. Hang on to that. We're going to come back to it, okay? Lightning. Psalm 18, 14. He sent out his arrows and scattered them. He flashed forth lightnings and routed them. This is military terminology. This is taking over. This is judgment happening. Zechariah 9, 14. Then Yahweh will appear over them, and His arrow will go forth like lightning. The Lord Yahweh will sound the trumpet, 
and will march forth in the whirlwinds of the south. So again, judgment happening. Uh, Habakkuk 3, 11 and 12. The sun and the moon stood still in their place and the light of the arrows as they sped at the flash of your glittering spear. Now glittering there is Barach, lightning. At the flash of your lightning spear, you marched through the earth in fury. You threshed the nations in anger. This is judgment. And Habakkuk interprets this imagery as a prophecy of the military invasion of Judah by the Chaldeans. That's what this lightning is about. It's a judgment coming. The Greek word used for lightning in Matthew 24-27 here is astrope, and it means lightning by analogy, a glare, a bright shining. The same Greek word is also used in other passages to speak about judgment. For example, Luke 10-18, And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. It speaks of the judgment, the judgment of God against Satan. We see it in Revelation 16, 18-19. And there were flashes of lightnings, rumbling peals of thunder, and a great earthquake, such as there had never been since man was on the earth. So great was that earthquake that the city was split into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell. And God remembered Babylon the great to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of His wrath. This is judgment. This is what lightning is about. It's talking about judgment. So the lightning comes. It seems to me that when Yeshua compares His coming to lightning, He's saying that His coming will be seen in judgment. That's important, people, because a lot of times people think of the coming of Christ and they have this vision of Him on a cloud. Like there's a man, you know, five foot seven man, standing on a cloud like a surfboard riding and oh, Christ is coming. Well, cloud comings are judgment comings. Lightning comings are judgment comings. So He's coming in judgment. Albert Barnes in his commentary on this says this, The destruction of Jerusalem is described as His coming. His act. Okay? I think that the designation here, Son of Man, is significant. Son of Man is a New Testament designation for Yeshua as God incarnate in the flesh, an agent of divine judgment. And I think that this verse is clearly telling us that Christ's parousia will be seen in the destruction of Jerusalem. You know, people want a physical coming? That's kind of physical. To the Jews, that was a very physical coming. Okay? And the immediate context bears this out. These verses all speak of judgment. Verse 28. Whenever the cor- wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will be gathered. Why you got corpses? Because you've had judgment. And you got a lot of dead bodies laying around. And what he's saying here, listen, the Jewish nation was a corpse which was morally and judicially dead. And the Romans descended upon it and they devoured it. This language is seen in the judgment language of the Tanakh. Habakkuk 1, 6-8 says, For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans. Now, Yahweh is speaking here. So the Chaldeans coming in here is an act of Yahweh. He's doing this. I'm raising him up. That bitter and hasty nation who marched through the breath of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. They are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards. More fierce than the evening wolves, their horsemen press proudly on. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle swift to devour. The eagle there, bird of prey, same idea. The vultures, the eagles, they're coming to prey on the dead corpses of this judgment. Isaiah 46 says, declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand, I will accomplish all my purpose, calling a bird of prey from the east. Again, God is doing this. I'm calling this bird of prey. The man of my counsel from a far country, I have spoken, I will bring it to pass, I have purpose, I will do it. God said, I'm going to bring this judgment. Jeremiah 7, 33 and 34. And the dead bodies of the people will be food for the birds of the air and for the beasts of the earth, and none will frighten them away. And I will silence all the cities in Judah and the streets of Jerusalem, the voice of myrrh, the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom, the voice of the bride, 
for the land shall become a waste. Again, he's speaking of judgment, and he talks about these birds of prey. Hosea 8.1 Set the trumpet to your lips. One like a vulture is over the house of Yahweh, because they have transgressed my covenant and rebelled against my law. In other words, the vultures are circling overhead because they violated the law of God. The victories of the Romans were not confined just to the city of Jerusalem. But like a flood, they overran the whole land. Wherever the Jews are, there will Christ be taking vengeance upon them by the Romans. Now Josephus writes, There was no part of Judea which did not partake of the calamities of the capital city. At Antioch, the Jews being falsely accused of design to burn the city, many of them were burnt in the theater. Others were slain. The Romans pursued and took and slew them everywhere, as particularly at the siege of Machaerus. At the wood Jareds, where the Jews were surrounded and none of them escaped, but being not fewer than 3,000 were all slain, and at Masada were being closely besieged, and upon the point of being taken, they first murdered their wives and children, and then themselves to the number of 960. In other words, they're killing themselves so the Romans won't do it. We're doing this to prevent them from doing it. To prevent their family from falling to the enemy's hands. Many were slain in Egypt, and their temple was there shut up. In Cyrene, the followers of Jonathan, a weaver, authority of new disturbances, were most of them slain. He himself was taken prisoner, and by his false accusations, 3,000 of the richest Jews were condemned and put to death. This verse is connected with the preceding by the word for, implying that this is a reason for what is said, therefore, that the Son of Man would certainly come to destroy the city and that He would come suddenly. The meaning is that He would come by means of the Roman armies as certainly, as suddenly, as unexpectedly, as whole flocks of vultures and eagles, through unseen, though unseen before, see their prey at a great distance and suddenly gather in multitudes around it. So keen is their vision as aptly to represent the Roman armies, though at the immense distance, spying as it were, Jerusalem a putrid corpse and hastening in multitudes to destroy it. So he's talking about this destruction and he's using biblical language here. John Broadus, who wrote in 1886, wrote this, Christ shall be revealed with sudden vengeance, for when God shall cast off the city and people grown ripe for destruction, like a carcass thrown out. The Roman soldiers, like eagles, shall straight fly to it with their eagle ensigns to tear and devour it. In verse 29, he says, Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heaven will be shaken. Now, modern commentators generally understand this and what follows as the end of the world. You can understand that? You read those words, well, that sounds like the end of the world. Wow, everything, I mean, sun's going out, stars are falling, everything's collapsing, right? But the words immediately after the tribulation of those days show he's not speaking of a time distant future to us, but something immediately following the tribulation that he just mentioned, which was the destruction of Jerusalem. So whatever this is talking about, it happened immediately after the Jerusalem destruction, which we know took place in A.D. 70. The word immediately is the Greek word eutheus. It means directly, at once, or soon, as soon as, forthwith. That's a New York word, I think. Forthwith. Immediately, shortly, straightway. Notice carefully when this takes place, he says immediately after the tribulation of those days. We have seen that the tribulation happened in 66 to 70 A.D. with the destruction of Jerusalem. So whatever this is referring to, it happened immediately afterward. Now, if you are not familiar with apocalyptic language, the language used throughout the Tanakh, you're not going to understand what Christ is saying here. Because this sounds like the end of the world. Right? He says the sun will be darkened. The moon will not give its light. The stars are falling from heaven. The powers of the heaven are shaken. But here's the thing, people. And this is really important. This is one of the reasons I'm always harping at you to read your Bible. Cover to cover, old, new, read it every year. Read through it, read through it, get familiar with it. Because if you're familiar with the first three quarters of your Bible, 
known as the Tanakh, a.k.a. the Old Testament. If you're familiar with that language, when you come to the New Testament, you're going to understand what the language means there. But if you just start in the last quarter of the book, and you begin reading, and you say, the sun will not give its light. I know what that means, because I know what the sun is, I know what light is, and I know what not. And so everything goes dark. But see, if you don't understand apocalyptic language, the New Testament writers didn't make this stuff up. They used the language that was all throughout the Tanakh. The idea is clearly seen in passages where mention is made of the destruction of a state and a government using language that sounds like the end of the world. And I think we should be able to understand this because let's say you're in Jerusalem when it's destroyed. Did the world come to an end? For you it did, right? Your world came to an end. And that's what's important to understand, again, the context. What are these readers understanding when he's saying this stuff? Alright? Let's look at Isaiah. Because I want to show you this language in Isaiah and show you what it's talking about here. Isaiah 13.1 says, The oracle concerning Babylon which Isaiah the son of Amos saw. So in this chapter, God is talking about the judgment that is to fall upon who? Babylon. The word oracle is the Hebrew word masah. Masah is an utterance of doom. Okay, so he's pronouncing a doom against Babylon. Keep that in your mind when you read the rest of the chapter. It doesn't switch partway through. Okay, this is about Babylon. This introduction sets the stage for the subject in the whole chapter. And if we forget this, then our interpretation of Isaiah 13 can go just about anywhere our imagination wants to go. This is not an oracle against the universe or the world. It's against Babylon. He says in verse 6, Wail, for the day of Yahweh is near. As destruction from the Almighty it will come. The day of Yahweh is a day of judgment. And it's coming on Babylon. Alright? Isaiah 13, 9-13 says, Behold, the day of Yahweh comes cruel with wrath and fierce anger to make the land, again, we're talking about the land of Babylon, a desolation and destroy its sinners from it. For the stars of heaven and their constellations will not give their light. Does that sound familiar? The sun will be dark at its rising. The moon will not shed its light. I will punish the world for its evil. And the Now again, he's talking about Babylon. It's their world that's going to be punished. And the wicked for their iniquity. I will put an end to the pomp of the arrogant and lay low the pompous pride of the ruthless. I will make people more rare than fine gold and mankind than the gold of Ophir. Therefore, I will make the heavens tremble. The earth will be shaken out of its place at the wrath of Yahweh of hosts in the day of His fierce anger. Now remember, he's speaking about the destruction of Babylon, but it really sounds like worldwide destruction. But the terminology of a context can't be expanded beyond the scope of the subject under discussion. The spectrum of language surely can't go outside the land of Babylon because that's who he's writing to. That's who he's writing about. And if you were a Babylonian and Babylon was destroyed, your world just ended. The lights went out for you. Okay, The stars are falling from the sky. The sun went dark. Your world is over. It's destroyed. Now watch what he says in, in Isaiah 13, 70. Behold, again, God is speaking. I am stirring up the Medes. God is doing this. Against them, against Babylon, who have no regard for silver and no delight in gold. This is a historical event that took place in 539 B.C. when the Medes destroyed Babylon. God said, that's my work. I'm stirring up the Medes. I'm punishing Babylon. The Babylonian world came to an end. This destruction is said in verse 6 as destruction from the Almighty. Okay, the Medes are doing it. That's clear in this context. God raising up the Medes. The Medes are doing the destruction. But He says it is a destruction from the Almighty. And then He goes on in verse 17. He says, Behold, I am stirring up the Medes. The Medes constitute the means that God uses to accomplish this task. This is apocalyptic language. This is the way the Bible discusses the fall of a nation. 
Now, this obviously is figurative language. God did not intend for us to take this literally. Because if you take it literally, the world ended in 539. So where does that leave us? Milton Terry said this, From these quotations, it is apparent that there is scarcely an expression employed in Matthew and Luke which has not been taken from the Old Testament Scriptures. That's so important, people, that you grasp that. Okay? That's why people are so confused in the New Testament. They don't know the language of the Old Testament. They don't know the New Testament writers. They're all Jews. They're using that language. Okay? He says, such apocalyptic forms of speech are not to be assumed to convey the New Test- in the New Testament a different meaning from that which they bear in the Hebrew Scriptures. They are part and parcel of the genius of prophetic language. He's right on. You've got to understand the language. When you understand it, you know, okay, when we go back to Isaiah and he's talking about the destruction of Babylon from the Medes, then you come into the New Testament, he's using the same language to talk about the destruction of Jerusalem by the Romans. Different army, different people, same thing. God says, I'm doing it. I'm going to destroy Jerusalem. I'm going to punish them for their sin. James Stuart Russell in 1878 said this, The symbols are in fact equivalent to those employed by our Lord when predicting the doom of Israel. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the horrors of the siege of Jerusalem, shall the sun be darkened, and the moon shall not give her light, and the powers of the heavens shall be shaken. Both passages refer to the same catastrophe and and employ very similar figures. Besides which, we have the authority of our Lord for fixing the event and the period of which He speaks within the limit of the generation then in existence. That is to say, the reference can only be to the judgment of the Jewish nation and the abrogation of the Mosaic economy at the parousia. So this is written hundreds of years ago, people. And he understands, okay, this language is not about our future It's about the past. It's about what God did in the past for Jerusalem. He says, he ends this verse, the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of heaven will be shaken. Okay, we're going to talk about this in our next study of Matthew 24 because I want to spend some time just focusing on the idea of stars falling because there's a lot of meaning behind this and I think we miss it too often. We just think it's okay, that's just symbolic and we move on and there's, there's a judgment happening here against these stars and that's what we're going to talk about. All right, But I want you to see this morning that you know, the stuff he is talking about, again, is all connected with the disciples' questions. When will it be? When will the temple be destroyed? When will you come? Because they saw the coming of Christ, destruction of the temple, the end of the Jewish age, all connected. When will it happen? And he tells them when it will happen. And later in the chapter he says, this generation will not pass away till all these things, everything I've just talked about in Matthew 24, will happen to this, not that, this generation. Let's pray. Father, we thank You this morning for the opportunity to look at Your Word. Lord, I pray that You'd give us the hearts of Bereans. We'd be able to look at these things. We would compare Scripture with Scripture. we desire, Lord, to know the truth of Your Word. Father, I thank You for the clarity of Your Word, for so many helps that we have today. I thank you for the history that Josephus brings us and helps us to see what was happening during that siege. Thank you, Lord, for your grace to us. May we be people, Lord, that honor you by the lives we live. Thank you, Father. Amen. Okay, questions? Comments? I actually started early, but yeah, I did. That's because I got to start a little early, so... Are you sad? I could keep going, I guess. Huh? No? Gary? Let's go ahead and unpack that next section. Okay. (laughs) Tell us about the stars. That's going to take a little while to unpack that. One aspect aspect of lightning, that uh, it it comes so quickly. If you blink, you miss it. And they missed it. A lot of people missed it. My question is uh, Matthew 24, verse 22. What did I write down? Um, kind of implies that the some of the elect were killed. 
I, you know, some people have the belief that none of the elect were killed. They all left Jerusalem. They fled to Pella and they were safe. I don't believe that. I, I mean, I think that there were some people who just, you know, it was so such a temptation. Here's an army. They're attacking us. We're in a fortress. You, you've got to understand the stones. This thing was massive. The temple was built to withstand earthquakes because they had terrible earthquakes in that area. So we got these massive stones, this huge... It's a fortress. You heard what I read from Titus. Titus said, we couldn't have done this without God's help. We never got in there. It's a massive thing. Okay? So the temptation would be, stay in the fort. God said, no. Get out. Get out of Dodge. When you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, run for the hills. And I can't believe that every Christian was just like, yes, let's do it. The Lord said, well, let's go. No, I, I know Christians, and they don't always listen. <laughs> so, I, I, yeah. Well, I think Christians have probably always had this problem of uh, being selfish and self-centered. Not, I don't want to compare them to American Christians, because they could not have been on our level. But <laughs> Anybody else? Questions, comments? I think I got something here. <laughs> Junior's asking questions about the resurrection. Junior, I'm not going to get to that right now. We'll, we'll, I'll try to cover that in this series so that we can deal with that and make it clear. But I'm going to stick with the context for context with this morning. So I guess we're done? I do? Thank you. Y'all see this? I quit early and y'all are complaining, okay? (laughs) I go an hour and a half and you complain. I go too short, you complain. Come on. What's the right amount? 15 minutes? Three points in a poem? So much today about being bereaved. Just curious, did you put something in there that was off? <laughs> to say we catch it? I, you know, I often thought about doing. I often think I'm going to say something that's theologically wrong, <laughs> and just see who catches it. And I have said some things that are wrong, and I've never heard from people, and I'm like sad when that happens. I'm like, someone's not paying attention. We let it slide.